You're listening to Vet Candy. This show is brought to you by Brave Paws Anxiety and Stress Support Chewables for Dogs, Thunderstorms, Vet Visits, Fireworks, Separation Anxiety, and more. Every day can be a Brave Paws day. Check out mybravepaws.com. everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Vet Candy IRL and I'm your host Shannon Gregoire. So today I have this wonderful veterinarian who specializes in probably one of the most perplexing and misunderstood specialties of veterinary medicine is behavior. That little thing that your dog does and you don't know why he does it, well this veterinarian has the answers for you. (laughs) Please help me welcome Dr. Sally Foote. Thank you. So, Dr. Foote, tell me a little bit about how you got into veterinary medicine and what led you into becoming a behaviorist. I, whatever, grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and we had one dog, one pet. And when I was about, I guess, 12 years old, which is often the age that, you know, people start to, I think, tap into their real interests, you know, what what in life kind of makes them tick as they go through life. It was this combination of like nature, science, and how how animals function like in the world and our bond with them and that sort of thing. And so one day when we had our pet at uh, Dr. Berglund in Evanston, Illinois, and he was doing a checkup on our dog and everything, but just the way he like touched him and he knew, like he knew what was going on with Sean, even though the dog, Sean was my dog's name, couldn't tell him anything, I thought, that's really kind of cool, like how he can observe and how he can think and put together what he felt and know what's going on and then prescribe and all this, right? And then talk to my mother and me and explain it all. So that kind of bundled all these things. I like people, I like animals, I like science. So that's what sparked me to want to become a veterinarian. And so I did, you know, some whatever volunteering and things through high school and really worked my tail off for my grades when I was an undergraduate at Purdue University. And I was back in the old days. Okay, I'm old folks. I'm 61. And when I was um, applying to veterinary school in 1980, back then, if you came from a state with a veterinary school, that was the only veterinary school you could apply to go to. And that was because the states provided so much money to pay for your position at that college, you know, for your education. About 60%, I think, of the educational cost was covered by the state. So being an Illinois resident, uh, Indiana's like, no, we have a contract with, I think, Maryland, not Illinois. And so I would have had to become an Indiana resident and prove all this. And the dean at Indiana, Purdue's vet school said, "Don't, don't mess up your life. You'll do something wrong. Go to U of I. Just apply there. So I made the application. I squeaked in as a, there was the last 15 in our class that we were waiting for this money from the federal government to send to the college, like all these colleges across the nation. And it's the last 15 students they could admit if they got the money. So we found out like January, July 17th. <laughs> and then I was going to be starting at U of I like August 25th. <laughs> That's how I got into the University of Illinois. And it was a great college. And it was a good experience for me to go to a different college, you know, from where I went to my undergrad and still have some very close friends from both colleges. So that was my, how I got my DVM. So in a way that what sparked, first sparked my interest in behavior was two things. I had a summer job in between first and second year of veterinary school and uh, the pathology department was doing a research study on the feline sarcoma virus and feline leukemia virus. And this is the days before the vaccination and everything. So 
they needed to have mother cats that they knew when the kittens were born and the kittens were never exposed to feline leukemia virus or feline sarcoma virus. So there was this colony of queens of unspayed female cats on the veterinary research farm in this big building. And we had a Tom, a Tom cat. And so my job was to observe the females from when they would go into estrus the Tom had like his area, right? And then bring him, <laughs> kind of like field mating, you know, bring him into the, the group and have him see who can, could service, right? Then I, and it taught me a lot because then, you know, you see like the female will come out of heat, right? Because she's been mated. And then about three weeks later, we'd palpate for pregnancy. And this is the days before ultrasound also, folks. We did not have ultrasound. Don't have a good blood test, check for pregnancy either. So you waited about three weeks to see if you could feel, you know, the kittens in the uterus. And then we would take an x-ray at about four or five weeks into gestation to confirm. So then we knew the ones were having a litter and then we would set them up in a ward where they would basically a labor and delivery area to have their kittens. And then we knew those kittens were, you know, we knew what the you know mother was exposed to, blah, blah, so that they were not, so that for this study, we knew they were specific pathogen-free. Well, through all of that, I learned a lot about theriogenology and the cats, but I also learned a lot. And then Bonnie Beaver had just come out and it was the first book on feline behavior. And it was, I don't even think there are any books about feline medicine out then. And she had some, and, I, and it just really drew me in. I learned so much. I found it so fascinating and everything. And then uh, even when these queens, these cats were going to go into labor, how a cat can shut their labor down for up to 24 hours if they're stressed. Yeah, the caretakers there, of course, had been always taking care of these cats. and like, okay, she's sitting in her box a lot. Let's get her cage all sealed off and like signs up. Nobody walk in the room. If people come in here like they normally do, that, that mother is going to shut down. And we could lose the kittens. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I didn't know that. So this really gave me a lot of hands-on experience. And it just really piqued my interest in, you know, companion animal behavior. And so then as I just marched on with my, you know, professional veterinary career, if you will, I like to attend, you know, the, uh, excuse me, continuing education talks about that. And then it really kind of grew when Hen, uh, Dr. Ian Dunbar gave a day of puppy behavior and preventing dog behavior problems. It was about 1990 and I attended that day. And so then I started to incorporate solid science-based behavioral advice for socialization, handling and gentling, positive reinforcement. You know, when you've got a pup, had a puppy at those puppy exams. So it really helped a lot of these puppies to grow up to be, you know, good companion pets for their families. And, um, you know, like I said, continue on with CE. And then I did take it was an immersion weekend that they had at Purdue University. And frankly, I would love to bring that here to my Bella Behavior Learning Center in Illinois. Dr. Lusher used to run it and he's retired, but have one of the board of behaviors do this. It was a three-day immersion weekend where you learned all the medications, the drugs, and how to do a behavior consult of the major diagnoses. So then I felt confident to really kind of put my shingle out there to the you know, community and veterinarians around to take behavior referrals because the only boarded behaviorist at, at that time was one in Chicago. And that was back in like 2009. And so I've grown in my knowledge and expertise and especially really focusing on low stress handling, fear-free. I do have a patent on a medical record system called the Bella Behavior System for how you quickly record and score 
the handling plan so everybody on the staff can follow it. And then you can also give it to your client for home care. I'm one of the authors on the first level of the fear-free program. And I used to uh, head Dr. Sophia Yim's company, uh, Cattle Dog Publishing. Now it is owned by Vin, but when it was still in the trust, I headed that and uh, created the feline anxiety poster and other content you know, for that company. So then when I sold my practice in 2018, now I focus solely on educating veterinarians, speaking about behavior and especially low stress veterinary care. That's the term I'm going to use because it's, it's primarily handling, but more than that, you know, communication with the client, these uh, staff training, going to clinics to do on-site staff training and also speaking events, immersion training here at my learning center. I have a mocked up veterinary practice. So people learning lab at the universities, but truly the size of an exam room, eight feet by 10. Truly the congested reception area because it needs to be made up close to what many practices look like. Be made up to be kind of difficult to do because that's what our real life is like. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. I love my fur babies so much, and when they're stressed out, it makes me stressed out. Mine hate loud noises like thunderstorms and fireworks, and sometimes they just don't want to be left home alone. Brave Paws is a natural stress and anxiety chewable for dogs. It is clinically proven to help calm nervous dogs by maintaining normal cortisol levels. What's even better is that it's fast acting and starts working in less than an hour. Want to learn more? Check out mybravepaws.com. That's amazing. So it's like a snowball effect. You started, you know, really liking this one behavior thing and then you branched out into all these different aspects of it. And I think that's something a lot of veterinarians let it slip to the wayside because they're so focused on, you know, those. DKA cats or, you know, those life-threatening, immediately life-threatening situations when behavior is the number one thing that makes pets end up in the shelter. So I think that is in and of itself a life-threatening issue because then those pets may be euthanized. I mean, even in my vet school training, we do, we do get some of it, but it's not as on the forefront as all the other sciences. And I think that's maybe a little unfortunate because all animal handling is based on behavior. Yes, and even for people to bring their pets in or animals in for care is based on behavior. There's a change, a change in how they walk, a change in how they eat. Those are behaviors, you know, so to broaden the scope of how what we consider or define as a behavior. Yeah, that's true too. I mean, people only bring their pets in when they have a change in behavior and that signifies some other medical issue. But the only way that they can know, unless there's an overt clinical sign, <laughs> like blood coming out of somewhere or vomit coming out of somewhere, you know. Exactly. Right. Or, you know, when, when veterinarians give their to-go home orders and what to look for in your pet, I mean, you're looking for behaviors in those recommendations too. Being a, a practice owner and a behaviorist, how did that shape your practice compared to a lot of others that you've seen? I call it putting your patient first. We put what this animal needs for comfortable, less stressful care as the first priority. 
So immediately, you know, a client will come in with a laundry list. It's a once a year, once every 18 month, you know, exam, vaccination, heartworm, nails, check the ears, check the anals, do this, do that, do that, right? If the animal is coming in, ears are down, the tail is down. First thing is at the reception desk, we had the adaptal, we had the bandanas, like he needs this now, put it on him now. So you're very preemptive and forward. There was no asking, can I do this? No, here you go. We're putting it on now because he looks like this. Then as part of, you know, say assistant and technician staff knew, okay, we'll get a weight, but I may change what I'm checking on him on admission because I don't want to trigger or stimulate him more where he may get more stress because the meanest person in the room has to come in here. We want to keep it as low stress as possible, but I will tell the doctor, like, I'm not, I didn't take the temperature. I'm not doing this and not doing that because he was already looking nervous. Okay, good where I'll decide whether or not a temperature needs to be taken. So having the freedom to decide what was really needed or not needed, that triaging of care, I think also is different. I had a physically small practice and I was a solo practitioner. So I did all the, all the exams and care and treatment, et cetera, right in the room in front of the client. There was no going in the back. I really didn't even have a back, you know what I mean? And so it, I've, I looked at it as, not just, oh, it's better for the pet, but also, hey, this saves me time. I don't have to explain what I saw in the physical later. I'm going to explain it as I'm doing it. And to be creative. I mean, we'd have the animals that is like, okay, he likes being up in the technician's arms. That's how we're going to do the exam. If he wants to be off the table and on the floor, we're going to do it on the floor and I'm going to kneel down for it. If, uh, you know, he's less agitated to take his blood from the lateral saphenous vein, the tarsal vein, that's where we're going to take it. It doesn't matter where the blood comes from. It's blood. That's all we want is blood. So that, you know, you get adept at having, what they call it being agile. <laughs> You're being agile in the exam. And that was also very different. And that's what my clients would say outright. Like, hey, Dr. Foot's the type, she walks in the room and suddenly the animals seem intentional because I'll be right back. And I may take off my white coat and I have a handful of the best treats of all. And I tell the staff, only I gave these, only me. Because I'm the worst one in the room, I got to give the best stuff. And my staff knew they're like, okay, there you go. And then the, then the pet would be less agitated. But the client saw that I was willing to do what was best for the pet first. And I was also willing to do things that looked a little non-doctorly, like taking off your white coat or talking baby talk to an animal, right? Or kneeling, me kneeling and, you know, getting in an awkward position to avoid any kind of front you know, frontal approach to the animal because it kept it more relaxed. I mean, baby talking animals is probably one of my favorite things. (laughs) Oh, I do it in front of clients all the time and I have no shame. Like I love their babies just as much as they do. (laughs) Well, that is professional. If talking, that's what I would tell my staff too. And an older vet told me that as well when I was young and first starting in practice, like you don't talk baby to the animals and you need to. Because that's what their owners do at home too. So it's something that they're used to. It's a comforting, it's a positive reinforcement for them when you have that more high-pitched kind of how you would talk to a baby. It's how people talk to their animals. So it's something that they're familiar with, a human behavior that they're familiar with. And then that, that was a standard of care. They're getting too agitated. Like if they started to get agitated and all these little things wasn't helping them, Okay, we're not doing this today. I'm going to send you home with meds or you, need, you didn't give the meds they sent you home with. So we're going to quit. You're going to have to come back or we're going to give him injectable right now because I'm not, I'm not going to have him get upset like this. No. Yeah. Two people could hold him down tight and get it done. But then now we've just taught him to hate coming in here and I'm not doing it. You have to draw a line on that. And then for the clients who are what I would call drug resistant, they didn't want to give meds. I said, okay, fine. Then let's make a deal. 
you're going to bring him in here for some happy visits a number of times. So it helps to really decrease his anxiety about coming in here. You're going to be willing to stand outside in the cold because coming in the building upsets him too much. And I'll come out there in the cold with my jacket on to give him his rabies vaccination while he's eating peanut butter out of the tub. And you got him happy about wearing the muzzle at home. That's how we'll do it if you're not going to be willing to give meds. You are part of the equation. This is not us waving a magic wand and just knowing how to do it. We're all a part of this to make it, you know, have your pet be better for less aggression and anxiety. And clients would do it. Clients would do it. And because again, it's like drawing that line, like, no, I'm not, I'm not just going to get it done. And this was your choice by not taking the meds that were standing outside, you know, in the snow to do this. It's okay, fine. I could be outside in the snow for 10 minutes. No problem. I don't really like wearing a white coat, honestly. Like, I mean, I know you work so hard to get that privilege, I guess, of wearing a doctor white coat, but I don't like wearing it around, around clients and pets because it does something to the human psyche too. I'm going to encourage you to wear your white coat for two reasons. Number one, studies have shown, and it's still true, the white coat is what to the client raises your capabilities, how they see you as doctor. No matter what, whether you're wearing scrubs or you're wearing casual, there was a study done comparing the white coat over anything. They now know your doctor and they respect that your doctor, no matter how old you are, no matter what gender you are or anything else. And you're going to need that. Then number two, it's all about what the animal's conditioned to. When I walked in the room, most of the time they're jumping on the table. They're ready to go and happy. Why? Because the woman in white always gave the most valued reward. I got them conditioned to love a white coat. It's not hard to do. Just like you get a dog conditioned to, I love my muzzle. And they put their face right in. They're good to go for nails in case they might flip to bite. Yes, we had dogs who were more stressed not wearing a muzzle than wearing a muzzle because wearing the muzzle, they always were fed their peanut butter through it. So I'm going to encourage you to be the, the instead of the wicked woman in white, as I would say myself sometimes, the wonderful woman in white, because you got the best stuff in your pockets. That's very true. Just a little bit of positive reinforcement where you need it and behavior modification at its finest. <laughs> you know, talking about with COVID and everybody getting these, these pets that, you know, they adopted them and their humans are always around like 24 seven, no one was leaving their house. Like they were with their dogs all the time. And then all of a sudden they have to go back to work and the dogs alone for eight, 10 hours, however many hours a day. I mean, what have you, you seen with that so far? Separation anxiety is the head leading behavior problem. We all anticipated this the moment the stay-at-home orders happened. Like, okay, in two or four weeks, they're all going to be upset because they've had the owner home this long. Well, now we've had puppies raised who could not get out to socialize. You didn't have parties over at your house. Even if you didn't take them to puppy class, you still would have had like a party at your house or taking your puppy to your sister's you know, Labor Day barbecue or something where that puppy would have been petted and handled and greeted people and lots of other things. But now people weren't having so many of the parties or fewer people at the parties and so on. So these dogs who are now two years of age, they are having problems. Separation anxiety is also the leading behavior problem of any rescued dog. So now we also have older dogs, but you know most of them are still like between one to three years of age where they have separation anxiety. And it's probably worsened because they had some time in a previous home where they were all together, but then the separation anxiety got worse and that's why they're surrendered. So separation anxiety is really the biggie. The second ones are handling anxiety, handling aggression, and uh, then some housemate inter-dog aggression. The dogs are more most affected 
by the whole shutdown, stay at home than the cats as compared to the cats. Cats are a little bit more uh, hearing about like housemate aggression. And I think that's just because the people are home sitting on the chairs and stuff. It used to be the cat perches and they couldn't get away from each other as much. And then some people adopted cats, adding a cat to the home and then they didn't get through correct introduction. So it's a lot to take on with these, these animals, especially when you have um, maybe new pet owners and they don't really know what pet best fits their lifestyle. And then they pick one at the shelter because it's cute and they love it. And then it ends up not being the right fit. How do you go about kind of addressing a situation where someone might be feeling overwhelmed or kind of at a loss about what to do because they love this animal, but it's not what they maybe bargained for. Right. So I think it's most important to look at behavior problems in the same way that you would say like a skin infection or any kind of a more chronic, a chronic, something that's going to relapse, something that could come back again because you have to manage it, a medical problem. So the first thing you do like with a skin condition is you're, you're not going to just suddenly put antibiotics and say, you're good to go. We'll see you later. You know, antibiotics and here's this medicated shampoo. You're going to have to do some analysis to figure out what caused this, why is it happening now? And how can we decrease or eliminate the cause? And then in the case of behavior, and then we're going to give them a new experience in life, meaning through rewarding them, et cetera, especially if we still have to have this trigger around. So say, for example, we have a dog who gets really upset when someone has to leave to go to work, but we can't eliminate somebody leaving to go to work. So we have to then, you know, do the analysis of, okay, we're going to watch, watch you as every single step of, you know, as you're getting ready to leave. And even if you just go behind the door at home, see how the, how the dog escalates up. So we know how the level of panic for medication, but right now, every day, every meal is going to be uh, tossing and rewards, desensitizing him to every single aspect of your preparation to leave. And then secondly, we're going to make sure we don't have any other concurrent anxieties, co-anxieties also going on, because that's going to also aggravate the separation anxiety. So when people get, we call them a project pet now, they adopted a project pet. Yes, they're often very torn. And we're going to have a lot of people in conflict. So the first thing I'll say is, all right, it, they're coming here because they want to invest the time to find out like, how, how are we going to take care of this? I want to give it a try. Okay, so you do that analysis. And yeah, you, may, you know, there may be three or four different co-anxieties going on besides the separation anxiety. So again, like a medical condition, you know, you got skin problems. You also have a heart murmur and you also have valgus deformity in your legs. Well, the skin is the biggie problem right now. And then we're going to do a little something about, you know, your heart, but legs, we'll just have to get along with those right now because to deal with all three of them would overwhelm you. But you need to know that those curvy legs could be a significant problem in the future, okay? So you deal with it the same way. And then you would put whatever behavior problem is creating the most problem for the welfare of the animal and the people in the home is what you're going to focus the training on. A lot of times the you know, the plan is actually going to incorporate also treatment for the other two or three. Then it's lots of support. I have my clients, I tell them, I want a minimum of a once a week update. Tell me how things are going. It's unlimited. Send me videos, send me pictures, because it's a very visual thing to do. And I think what's also important to always give that client, and on that first consult, I ask them, what's your outcome? You know, what is your expectation? What is your need? If the need is like, I just can't do this. Okay, fine. Return them to the shelter. You can't keep them. 
And it's not your fault. It's not your fault. We've got to drop the shame. You have to drop the shame. And also that feeling like I failed them. No, you did not. You adopted an animal where these behaviors might not have shown until he came into a home. Or I'm seeing this in some rescues. They didn't tell you. They didn't give you the history. And you wanted a buddy. Now you have a dog who hates being out in public. And you can't have your buddy dog to go to the coffee shop with. We need to give the clients out for rehoming, return to the, um, excuse me, to the shelter and behavioral euthanasia when this animal is dangerous or highly, their welfare is highly impacted. Like they're so panicked, no drug or med can get them, you know, under control. Just like a seizuring animal that you give all the anticonvulsants, et cetera, and they're still having seizures. What would you recommend? We have to look at behavior in the same way. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice only on Vet Candy Radio. During COVID, when I was home a lot, um, I applied to be a foster and I got a couple dogs fostered through 2020. And one of the things they had on their application was that you had to be home most of the time. And I don't really think that might be the best thing for a dog when the foster is around most of the day. Maybe they're because of COVID, everybody was, but maybe there's someone retired who's who's home most of the time or a school, another school student that's in and out all day long. And then they get adopted by someone who works a normal job. And that's no longer the environment the dog's used to. So it seems kind of counterproductive. That's right. They were not prepared for a typical home. Yeah, they're not prepared for it because they require their fosters to be home all the time when the adopters won't be. So that's kind of like setting up for failure. Yes. So we need improved fostering out, you know, protocols for preparing this animal to go into a a typical home. We also need to have much more specific and clear adoption, like transition into the home plans specific for that animal and what can this family provide or not. I mean, to just say, avoid children is not the same as saying, when a four-year-old reaches for this dog, he will lunge up and bite their hand. So therefore, no child under the age of six should be closer than six feet to this dog. That's a specific plan. That's what our doctors need to hear when they adopt this dog. But often they're getting a general statement and then that's when problems occur and here we are. Right, because you don't know when they say avoid avoid small children or something, what happened. That'll mean something different to you than to me. Right. And so, you know, it could be that, you know, you don't want them to, you know, bite your child or someone else's child by accident when you didn't know that was a behavior that they're capable of, you know, but maybe they just like knock the kid over because they were so excited to meet it and lick its face that they like ran into the kid and the kid fell down and said, ow, you know, you don't know what kind of avoidance they're talking about. That's right. It's not specific enough. You know, they tell you that every dog's wonderful, which I get it because they want to adopt out the dogs, but it, it needs to be more transparent. Or why they're dog aggressive. Like what happened? Like I fostered a dog 
no one told me this dog was dog aggressive, but she was only aggressive towards shepherds and like husky looking dogs, like, you know, big, fluffy, you know, angry looking dogs. And she was fine with everything smaller than her and only aggressive towards dogs that looked like a shepherd that were bigger than her. And I had no idea. And she almost hurt someone else's dog because they were trying to meet on the street. And I thought it was a normal occurrence and it was not. Right. Right. So, so that was a setup for failure, not a setup for success. And they told me later that her and her previous foster dog attacked. I'm like, you need to tell me what that dog looked like. What, what happened in that situation? So I can be aware so that I don't put her in another situation like that. And again, that's where I'm going back to. We need to treat behavior as a truly a mental health condition, just like a physical health condition. So in other words, if this, say this dog was really allergic to beef, that better go along in the history with the adoption of the dog. Otherwise, this family may be giving this dog rawhide and his skin is going to get horribly inflamed or have chronic diarrhea. That's really hard on the animal. And they're going to be spending tons of money. And then they're going to figure out, oh, he's allergic to beef. We're back at the rescue. They knew that. And that, that's a medical indication. So behavior indication needs to be treated the same as a medical indication. And what resources, I guess, are there for, first, for pet owners that are maybe going through something and there's limited behaviorists throughout the country, and then resources for veterinarians as well to learn more and to learn how to communicate with their clients better. There's some various various sites and various things. Okay, so actually the SIVA Corporation that makes the feel-away pheromone and adaptive pheromones, they have a whole, for the veterinary staff, a whole continuing education portal. I have two puppy behavior uh, webinars on there. There's quite a number of them from also the other behaviorists on things like cats getting along and socialization of dogs and reducing housemate aggression and so on and so forth. So I think that's a very good resource and it's free. AHA has some guidelines and they have some general you know, information for pet owners and pets. People who do a lot of writing, say like myself, uh, Dr. Sophia Yin's website is still up. So drsophiayin.com, her blog has many articles. And, and then it's continuing to be contributed to by the you know staff through VIN and the boarded behaviorists through VIN uh, for you know a lot of different things. So that's another good resource. So go on to drspiyin.com. There are a couple of position statements, I think, which is very important for veterinarians, trainers, and veterinary technicians to have and shelter staff. And that is if you go to the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. That's A-V-S-A-B.com. And go to the position statements because a position statement on less stressful veterinary care, you know, positive veterinary care, the importance of always using these techniques and this handling. There is one that's recently been updated about the decreasing the use of punishment or, you know, training, training methods. There's one on a position statement about specific breed bans. So things like that. That's where you have position statement papers. So it's going to give some, you know what I mean, more validity to anything anybody might say or try to inform about. Yeah, thank you so much. And for anyone listening, we'll put those links that um, Dr. Foote was talking about below so that you guys can access those resources. And then one other thing that popped into my mind too is um, what about resources for finding a quality dog trainer? Because a lot of veterinarians don't do that repetitive kind of training with their clients because it takes a lot of time repetition. So how do you pick someone that's reputable or, you know, certain certifications that would lean you toward getting like 
this dog trainer over another one? I am pretty certain <laughs> on one of the blog articles on the AVSAB uh, website is, and I believe that maybe it's, it's not so much a position statement as it is a document. Okay. But it's like, how do we know the difference between these certifications and initials after say dog trainers names or in terminology, you know, the difference between a veterinary behaviorist, a veterinary behavior consultant, a behaviorist, et cetera. And the knowledge base they have, you know, knowledge base, if there's any kind of licensing required or not, actually not. The only one who's licensed is a veterinarian in the United States. Um, but anyway, I would go there. Now, IAABC.org, that's an International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. They also, it's a very good organization. It's not veterinary specific, but it is um, whatever, a grouping, <clears throat> excuse me, a veterinarian's PhD in behavior, uh, a master's degree in behavior. And that site also has a lot of couple articles and things on how to know the difference between these different, you know, certifications for dog trainers. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. I think, you know, you see all these advertisements for dog training or puppy classes. And I mean, some of them, they, I haven't even seen any letters behind their names. So you kind of wonder what, you know, if my dog's future is basically be in their hands, I want to make sure that this person knows what they're doing or, you know, is doing things in the right way. Right. And I think the other thing is trying to stay up on the like terminology or buzzwords used, the common words. So there's something called a balanced trainer, which is a trainer who's going to use aversives. They, and now how much they use them, that'll vary a little bit. But when they're saying balanced, they're using both a punisher and they're using positive reinforcement. So it's just the word balanced could mean a lot of things to different people. So it's good to know what, like what these terms mean, at least, at least know that you don't have to know everything about it, but at least know that. And if a trainer says, well, I'm a balanced trainer, say, tell me exactly what tools and techniques you use. Because I've seen some balanced trainers that may use say prong collar as a correction just on the first one or two, you know, um, and, and the timing's correct, et cetera. And because this animal really needs to hear the no, but it's only limited to that. And it's only maybe one or two, you know, sessions and as the animal improves, not using it anymore. Okay. So that's pretty low on the aversion scale as compared to a balanced trainer who is using an electric shock collar and they are shocking the dog, you know, to punish out the behaviors and then periodically giving them a reward. You know, there's, there's a big difference between the two, but the wording is being used the same. Is there anything that you can do to kind of correct a dog who may be like, you know, you live in a place where you can't have a loud dog. And then whenever someone comes in the house, he barks manically. Is there any way that you can like address a dog that has this tendency to just go off for like five, 10 minutes of barking? The simple solution is that two things. You're going to have to keep that dog away from the door area because when he gets up that close, he's just got so much more stimulus and then he wants to get beyond the door. So he's going to be behind a baby gate and something good has to be happening for him as he hears those footsteps come up the door, as the person is coming to the door, as the door is opening, et cetera, et cetera. So guess who gets food thrown at them or a quick release device for releasing food on the house side. Now on the other side, the person who's coming through the door is going to be tossing a reward to the dog as soon as they come through. So he puts his head down and he eats it. That's what gets him to quiet down and to like go away from the door where all that high stimulus is. So that's a simple thing. I have two videos on my YouTube channel called Barking Like Crazy. 
barking like crazy one and barking like crazy two, because that's exactly what it is, right? He's barking like crazy. So the first one, I go through the steps. Okay, it's called a drag line. He's going to wear a leash. So if he starts the barking, you can redirect him away and then tie him up here and give him a reward over here. And then the second one is where I actually show a setup where my father, when he was elderly, was coming into my home with his walker and my dog would tend to be like, bark, 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 and standing there like, oh, the walker. I, okay, no. When you know something's going to happen, let's set the dog up for success. There's me tied up here. She's got her food puzzle. I got my handful of food. Now I'm going to open the garage door and walk with my father through the home while my dog is rewarded to learn to stay quiet at the sight of my father and the walker and going up the steps. Right. Yeah, that's super helpful. And we'll put the link to your YouTube channel below too so people can watch all these videos from home and really get, you know, self-educated to see if they can start some of these things um, themselves when we all know that <laughs> veterinary appointments are, you know, like finding a needle in a haystack these days, especially with a behaviorist. And I also offer telehealth behavior consults. And that's the best way to do it. You see the animal in the home. It's like a virtual house call. And because I do not prescribe, I do not prognose and I do not diagnose, I can do a telehealth consult to any client. And then I collaborate with the primary care veterinarian for whatever medications or tests or diets or supplement are needed for this pet to improve the behavior. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. What platform or how can, you know, someone get a, a virtual consult with you? Just go on my website, behavior consult page, fill out the online form, sets up the, uh, I get that in, as like the intake process, I set up the appointment and we use like this, we use a go-to meeting, video I have the client put it on their phone so they can walk around the house, flip the camera, go outside, and I record it. And then I share the recording with the client. I share the recording with the veterinarian, and then I send a written report. And again, then I have 12 weeks of support afterward. And then we need to do a second consult or whatever we do. Then it's kind of more on the veterinary staff if they need a local trainer, you know, to help them work with things. But that's how I how I provide my services as a behavior consultant. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I think that's a fantastic way to reach more people right from their home. So you can see, you know, a lot of times they don't do the behaviors in the clinic that they do at home. So trying to. <laughs> oh, you better believe it. Uh, not only for behavior, I tell you what, for gait analysis or just in general, especially like post-surgery for not only checking the incision. All right, let's see. You got spade. Incision looks good. Oh, let's see her just walk around the room. And now you can see not only her walking around the room, you can see how the house is set up. If this is like, or whatever surgery, like an older pet that had a tumor removed. Now if they have to like go down four steps and then through a skinny hallway, you know, past the kids' boots and the three garbage cans, out through the down two more steps through the garage. And then they have to open up the garage door for the dog to go outside and go to the bathroom. And the client's complaining about the older pet now defecating or urinating in the house. Like, Oh, okay, I can see why now. So is there another door you can, a dog can go out? Oh, I guess the front door. Let's go see it. Let's see what the pathway's like. Oh, let's put some runners down so he doesn't skid on the hardwood floor. Let's do this until his energy is up and his agility is up to go down that longer path. And you would never have known that in the office. Right. You would have never have known that. And then you'd be racking your brain. Why, oh my goodness, does he have kidney failure? Why is he urinating in the house? We now we need to do all these fecal samples. And the client has been getting really pretty upset with their pet who's house soiling. That telehealth consult, you're going to see more in three minutes than you will get in 30 minutes in the office. Yeah, I mean, especially when they get that that cortisol, that stress release too, and their lameness is gone or their whatever issue has now disappeared because they're stressed at the vet. 
it's so nice to be able to see it where it actually happens. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. dog shake and tremble when she hears thunder? Brave Paws Anxiety and Stress Support Chewables may promote calm behavior in dogs who exhibit nervousness or anxious behavior. Our clinically studied and patented botanical blend contains naturally occurring bioactives, which can be found to promote a sense of calm and relaxation in dogs. What's even better is it's fast-acting and non-drowsy. Get it today at mybravepaws.com. Well, thank you, Dr. Foote. This has been so fantastic. And I love all the resources and the services that you can provide to clients. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And for all our listeners in the Vet Candy universe, thank you so much for listening. We will post all the links to Dr. Foote's YouTube channel, all the resources that she talked about below. So if you have any questions, you can go to those resources. You can contact her, get a consult whatever works best for you. And we hope to uh, see you <laughs> listening next time. Thank you so much. I'm Shannon Gregoire and this is Vet Candy IRL. It's Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.